1: If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.
2: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at slash travel today to get a free audiobook
1: and 30 day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. The world, the and now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
2: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Florida. I'm a big water guy, so every time I come to Tampa I gotta get out in the water. My next guy knows all about the water because he gets in it. That's right. He does. He's the associate curator for the Florida Aquarium. Eric Hovland, how are you, sir?
3: I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me, Peter.
2: Uh, You're also a shark guy
3: oh yeah sharks are my passion i'm the shark guy
2: all right but do we have sharks at the aquarium
3: we do have sharks at the aquarium we have a number of sharks at the aquarium from the tiny bamboo sharks all the way up to our sand tiger sharks in fact, there's a really cool relationship between those sharks
2: and nurse sharks
3: I'm and sure. we have nurse sharks too yeah yep. uh,
2: i went swimming i mean i went swimming with the nurse sharks in uh, the
3: galapagos fantastic and
2: they were the tamest they they just were, were fearless and
3: friendly They are, you know, and that's actually true of most of the sharks that are out there. Sharks kind of get a bum rap. They get some bad press, and that's why, you know, people ask me, like, Eric, why sharks? And I say, because everyone already loves dolphins. (laughs) They love sharks, too. (laughs) It's a world I want to live in. Flipper, flipper. Okay, sorry. Uh, But bottom line is...
2: You have to know the difference between sharks.
3: It helps to understand sharks. It helps to understand that sharks are, you know, when, when we're entering their environment, we're really entering their environment where, where man is out of his element because you've got a whole other dimension of up and down and the surprise.
2: Now, you're originally from Wisconsin, not known for sharks.
3: Not so much. We're pretty short on sharks in Wisconsin, although a bull shark has been caught as far north as Illinois. So they're a factoid <laughs> for you. How'd he get there? He swam. I I know that, but I mean, how did, I mean... He's not native to that that location. Bull sharks can move into freshwater. They can regulate their blood chemistry so they can actually move into freshwater environments around the world. That's one of the reasons they've gotten a wrap is because bull sharks are in places you might not expect them to be. But it's not a reason to freak out over sharks. Well
2: moving beyond sharks and getting yes. into a definition of terms, you know, there are amusement parks that feature sea life and sure. then there's there's an aquarium there's That's a big right. it's a big difference
3: there is in that the aquarium and especially what we're known for at the Florida aquariums we're we're engaging folks in the the backyards that they didn't even realize they have the wilds of florida florida is surrounded three quarters by water we have more coastline than just about any other state And we're so dependent on water from the 100 million guests that come to Florida every year to all the wildlife out there, which provides not just food and entertainment and sport, but the very air that we breathe comes from healthy coral reef environments. About every other breath, you should say, thank you, sharks and healthy coral reefs. That's where the oxygen is produced. Well, from an educational level, then,
2: what am I going to learn at the aquarium in Tampa that I would never otherwise get?
3: you're going to learn at the aquarium about the diversity of species that's out there. A lot of people are already thinking about just what you said, flipper there, they might have sharks on the mine. But even learning that something like corals, like the staghorn corals are so prevalent in the coral reefs of Florida 20 years ago and are on a fast decline. Well, we have a program at the Florida Aquarium that can help people better understand how we're helping to you know, grow those corals in our, in our setting of our coral conservation or, or Center for Conservation. And help protect those coral reefs and how important those are to everybody on the planet. And, and the things that you can do to make you know, a, a commitment to helping protect our waterways, but even you like actually, cutting out plastics. But
2: you actually have to make a firm commitment. I remember when I was growing up on the east coast in Long Island on the Great South Bay, sure, there was an abundance of oysters, an abundance of clams, an abundance of seafood with not what you could never run out. Well guess what? Yeah, it's running out. Well, not only was it overfished and overclammed, then we had Hurricane Sandy, and what Hurricane Sandy did is it tore up the seabed. Right. Right. It tore up the seabed so that the clams were were and the oysters were no longer protected from the crabs that wanted to eat them. Yeah. And as a result, it's almost empty now.
3: And that's what I think we're learning too. We, we've seen the same kind of um, results that uh, when hurricanes do hit a coastline, if you remove the natural barriers there, like the mangrove forests that are so prevalent here in Florida, you take that away. Now the water can wash completely over the land. It made a big difference in, in Katrina, it made a big difference in Ike and Galveston. And then you see that too. If you develop a coastline and you don't leave some of those natural barriers there and those healthy beaches there, you're going to lose you, a lot more. You, you pay the cost in the end, yeah what 's the most fascinating exhibit you have there I would say don 't say sharks oh no, 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 that no. would be no. way too biased, way too biased. Um, the wetlands gallery in the wetlands habitat it is a glass dome it 's enormous and it houses a whole home and a host of animals from free flighted spoonbills that have been making a comeback in Tampa Bay, which is a sign of a healthy recovering environment, but they're making a comeback in our very dome. We've got babies from two years ago that are still, you know, flying around the habitat. But we've got alligators and otters and fish of all types from Florida. It really is. And it's a mangrove forest that's over 20 years old. I've been happy enough to be there over 20 years myself and watch those grow from their little sprouts to 30-foot-tall mangroves. It is truly a living, home and habitat. Are and wetland. the
2: thing is, not only do you see that growth, when you come in there and put and, and you tell that story and you put it in perspective, then people yes. can, can really
3: respect that. And that's what we are doing, is connecting people with the wilds. So they've got to learn the stories of every one of these animals, and from the, the sharks to the turtles that we rescue and release every year, to the corals that we're doing our very best to protect so that we can still protect that environment for generations to come.
2: Turtle? we're not in Kansas anymore My next guest, like so many other people I know, came to Tampa by accident. It wasn't part of the plan. He was uh, trying to get into the Navy. They washed him out as a fighter pilot. And he took his uh, $200 discharge money, got into, uh, what kind of car was that? A 1966 Dodge Dart with no air conditioning. As it should be. (laughs) And one suit. And nowhere else to go. (laughs) And drove to Tampa. Well, guess what? In 2011, he got elected mayor. His name is Bob Buckhorn. Mr. Mayor, thanks for coming. Peter, thanks. Thanks for coming back to Tampa. And you're still
4: here? I am still here. It was the best decision I ever made. But it was just like
2: prompted by the Navy.
4: It did. It broke my heart because I had always aspired to be a fighter pilot. And when they misdiagnosed me and discharged me, it forced me to Plan B, which there was no Plan B. Are we now changing the name of Tampa to plan B? I guess so. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not often that someone who doesn't grow up in a city or spend most of their life is able to get elected mayor. Uh, but Aren't this, you the first one? I think I'm, if not the first, I'm pretty close. Yeah. But but I think what it speaks to is is Tampa's ability to welcome talent and even less talented folks like me to be a part of this community. I mean, there were no barriers for entry for me. You know, I scratched and clawed and fought hard to get here, but no one stood my way and said, you're not born or raised here. You're not a, a Tampanian by birth. So therefore you can't be the mayor. Um, they said, no, give it your best shot, son. And here we are in the third largest city in Florida. Absolutely. And the 53rd largest city in America. But who's counting? Yeah, me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, let me say, st- speaking of large cities, and, and I said this to you off air, but I to say it to you on air, I love your airport. Thanks. The Tampa Airport, for those people who have not flown here, you're in for a pleasant surprise. For people who have flown here, you already know what I'm talking about. It's actually an airport that works.
4: You know, Peter, we're very proud of that airport, and I think the folks that fly through there recognize what an amazing place it is. It's always rated as one of the highest uh, user-friendly, traveler-friendly airports, and and what folks— We'll be happy to know is that we're in the midst of a billion dollar expansion with another two billion dollar phase two coming over the next two years so yeah but don't change what works no now. we're not we're not and that's really a model for and if you can imagine this that design has been timeless basically and other airports have used that design and what's ironic about this is the sons of the original architect that designed that airport are working now on phase one and phase two of the expansion
2: all right so you've been here since what year 1982. okay so you've seen the airport grow I have. What makes it still work though what about the design of that airport says to you this is cool it's convenient uh ease of
4: use is is absolutely there we get you and it was the first uh, shuttle system that was at an airport from the terminals. from the terminals yeah. and so that shuttle system gets you to baggage claim rapidly and it gets you right out to your cars so the time that you are in that airport as you were saying earlier um, is minimal um, and what we're attempting to do with the expansion is to give you more food offerings give you more retail offerings to make the experience more pleasant than it already is for you. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. It is the design of that airport that makes it unique.
2: And it's only, what, 15 minutes away? It is, 15 minutes from downtown Tampa. Amazing. What's the thing that changed in, in Tampa that you think is,
4: is the, other than the airport, the coolest thing going? You know, we came out of this recession that had literally knocked us to our knees, um, and we had to make a fundamental decision as to whether we were going to get up off the mat and come back. Um, And we did, and I think the transformation of this city over the last six years has been nothing more than absolutely amazing. You know, Tampa's got a swagger about it. Tampa's got an attitude about it that's not cocky, um, but that recognizes that we are a city with immense potential, and our mission is to fulfill that potential. And we've been through our ups and downs. You know, you remember when we were declared America's next great city in the late 80s, and, and we didn't quite get there. But I think we're. And you
2: didn't quite get there then, because
4: because I think leadership, I think uh, the economy, um, I think there were conflicting and competing views about what it took to be. Um, in that top tier of cities. I mean, we're not competing with New York or, or L.A. or We're competing growth. with emerging Sunbelt cities. Wants growth, you know, the Austin, Texas, right? and the Charlotte, North Carolinas, in and the Nationals, and the San Diego. Um, you got to make sure it's the right We're competing for talent. We're competing for make sure it's the kind we're of We're competing that for uh, allow our best and brightest we're to remain here. I mean, I've got two young I kids. I don't want well them to have to leave for some other city. So the type of growth that occurs is important, and how you manage that. Are you seeing kids leaving? We were six or seven years ago. They were fleeing. We were a donor state and a donor city to other places that had really gotten their act together. Um, That has changed completely. I mean, young people are flocking back to Tampa in droves. So um, I worry less about our ability to compete because we can do that. What I worry about is uh, rampant growth, unregulated growth, growth without infrastructure uh, accompanying it. And so, you know, we have a great niche here. Um, We don't need to be the biggest city in America. We're not going to be the biggest city. You don't want to be. No, we don't, absolutely not. But I do want to be the economy that's driving the southeast United States south of Atlanta, and I think we're capable of doing that. Big international port, big international airport, a very diverse community that celebrates diversity as a strength, not as a weakness. Um, So I think we've got the capacity to do it, but you're absolutely right, Peter. How you manage that and how you plan for that is absolutely important. You mentioned the port. Uh, Have you wrapped that up? We have, uh, on both the, the cargo side and as well as on the cruise ship side. I mean, it is the largest steepwater port in the state of Florida by a long stretch. Port Miami is only 900 acres. Port Tampa Bay is 5,000 acres. So we have a lot of room for growth. We just invested in two new gantry cranes. We are the closest port to the Panama Canal, which has obviously been widened. Yeah, get out your maps, boys and girls, and just do a straight line from Tampa, and you're going to hit Panama. Absolutely. And so we, we potentially have the, gateway, the the ability to be the gateway Um, to Central and South America for for different reasons in Miami. Miami's got its own niche, but I think we have the capacity to do that. We speak the language. We're a multicultural community, and we're proud of that, and we celebrate that. Um, So it's it's a city that's on the rise, a city that is on the verge of something really, really special. Plus, you've got ships now sailing from Tampa to Cuba. We do indeed. We have – I think you're going to be on one of them shortly, and that is going to open up that market, although – I will tell you, it will be a long time before Cuba is a significant trading partner for the state of Florida or for the country. Their ability to, to pay, their ability to get credit is limited. Yeah. Um, until there are fundamental changes in the government, I don't think you're going to see real freedoms occur. Uh, but, you know, it starts with people to people. It starts with educational exchanges, and, and that's happening.
2: You know, we talked about the airport. Let's talk about airlift, because without airlift, it doesn't matter how good the airport is, you suffer. If you take a look at the airlines that we have in America, I'm talking about the, the legacy carriers. We've gone from eight major carriers that used to fight for, fight for 88% of the market share down to four of them that essentially own it. So your challenge, as many challenges are to other mayors like you, is how do you keep the airlift even at the level it's at, let alone how do you increase it? Well,
4: our, what we have tried to do over the last six years is expand that capacity and, and to put Tampa on the global map. We did not have international flights of any significance six years ago. So we made it, a but miss- you are an international airport. We are, and and we made it a mission for the last six years to go out and recruit um, international flights to come to Tampa. Uh, we were successful with Copa
2: Airlines, which really opened up Central and South America. And we've done a story on Copa. If you look at the map, if you think you can't get there from here, if you don't mind going through Panama City, Panama, right? Guess what?
4: You're it op- there. It opens up the entire Central and South America, and they told us no for three years, and we dogged. The CEO, Pedro, Pedro, love Pedro. Pedro. See, I know Pedro, there you go. We dogged him for three or four years until we were able to make the case to him. And it was a very data-driven case as to why Tampa made sense. Uh, We've expanded airlines with uh, Icelandic Air, with Idlevice Air. Um, We are aggressive about it. We're incentivizing these airlines to come here. Um, And once they look at the numbers and they see the reach in this Tampa Bay area, and it doesn't compete with Orlando. This is an entirely different marketplace. Um, it's an easy decision for them. So I think we're expanding our offerings, um, expanding our routes, routes domestically and internationally, and I think it will bode well for us. And yet the distance between Tampa and Orlando is no big deal. It's not. It's it's 90 miles. It's an entirely separate market. Um, we attract a lot of people who fly into Orlando for the theme parks but then want to come to the beaches down here. So we're, we're actually advertising in Orlando with a campaign that calls uh, Tampa Bay Area Orlando's beaches. <laughs> and it's working. <laughs> Well, you know what? It's not one-dimensional anymore. It's not. I mean, people can bookend. They can indeed, and it's easy to rent a car and come down here and experience the beaches and then go back to the theme parks. What have you done in terms of your own building codes here to make sure that you don't become out of control in terms of development? Well, it's interesting. We're trying to focus most of the development in the urban core where the infrastructure is already in place. I mean, our downtown has just exploded in growth, but that's a good thing. That's where you have the density. That's where you can go higher. That's where the infrastructure is in place. We finished the Riverwalk. I mean, it is a very different downtown, Peter, than, than it was even a year ago when you were here before. You know, we're obviously moving to green codes and encouraging people to build to lead certified uh, standards. So we really are being smart about this. Um, we don't want the sprawl that takes place when people move to where the dirt's cheaper or where you drive to you can qualify for a mortgage. We want the bulk of the growth to occur in the urban core because I will tell you, if we're gonna attract millennials, and if we're going to attract, attract intellect, intellectual capital, those young people want to live in the urban core. They don't want to live in the burbs. So we have to build a downtown that's attractive to them. Riding along in my automobile
5: My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio
0: With no particular place to go
2: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at wwwaudiblepodcastcom travel today to get a free audiobook and 30 day trial. My next guest doesn't have to go all around the world to have a great dining and eating experience because he's the food and dining editor of the Miami Herald, and there's a new restaurant opening up here about every 13 seconds, and he's got to cover it all. What a tough job he has. Carlos Frias, how are you?
6: It's good to be here, Peter. It's great.
2: I mean, I'm never disappointed. I'm never surprised. I am amazed, though, because, I mean, the turnover, the opening, it just doesn't stop. No, and, and we're catching us in the time of the season
6: where some of those restaurants that were ambitious at the beginning of the year are now kind of tightening their belts and seeing if they can make it through to the beginning of the season which is interesting to watch
2: so basically you're Mr. Opening Night <laughs> yeah
6: yeah it's it's you know get there find out about the restaurant early see if it's uh, what's what it's all about because uh, if it doesn't have something special it may, it may not be there for long
2: well You see the trends, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it's not just Cuban cuisine. It's not just, you know, or like in California, it's not just Mexican cuisine. It's everybody, right? So what are you seeing that's actually exploding here in Miami now?
6: You know, the thing that we're seeing the most is Peruvian. Peruvian in general, both upscale and downscale Peruvian. Okay, so my question was, how much ceviche
2: can you eat?
6: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of um, more of the Asian influences. So it's not just specifically Peruvian, but they're kind of reaching out to their um, kind of like their pan-Asian being brought into it so like their Chinese Japanese roots in in that and the Peruvian yeah absolutely wow so it's really and and it's it's hot and
2: sour guinea pig yeah
6: (laughs) well you know uh, I think there may be one spot uh, that that actually does guinea pig which you because when I was in Peru
2: I couldn't show up anywhere without somebody offering me and you couldn't say no because it would be impolite they were giving you the guinea pig exactly and and who's gonna make better guinea pig than these folks right if you're gonna eat it right so what's the thing that's surprising you the most about what's going on in the restaurant scene here?
6: The the most interesting, th- interesting thing going on right now is that it's not out-of-town chefs opening their third, fourth restaurant on Miami Beach. It's locally grown folks who are uh, artisans and, and uh, kind of exploring their craft here, whether that's... Artisanal breads um, You know a, a guy that we know By the name of Zach the baker Who uh, went to Kind of scout Went scouting Through, uh, sounds through like a mass,
2: Sounds like a mass murderer
6: Well he's, Zach the baker Well but he looks He looks like a saint You look at him He looks okay. like a saint which And, he, and you, he does good bread Oh my god He does incredible bread Zach the baker In Winwood, Which is one of those Exploding areas Alright well
2: when we Talk about bakery I mean I've got Friends of mine Including our engineer Today Jorge uh, uh, Jorge Kion, who Who will tell you That nobody knows More about Cuban bread Than this guy Meaning him Jorge Right, and he will make a, po- a point of stopping everywhere he can to get that bread. You too?
6: Oh yeah, I mean, for me, there's nothing like a like just a café con leche and a nice toasty Cuban bread. I mean, that's like. But what I makes don't eat Cuban bread else? so special? I think it's you know, it's a lot of folks try to approximate it with uh, with like French bread, but really it's the lard, right? That's really just what makes it special. Now you there's a the name for fat. a good
2: Cuban bakery. It's the lard. <laughs> that's what it is. I mean, look, you go to Montreal; they have the best bagels in the world, but their answer is it's because it's the water. Here it's the lard.
6: Here it's the lard, man. I mean, if you you can't make a good Cuban bread without adding plenty and enough of lard.
2: Praise the lard. Okay, <laughs> but what I mean, what is it? What makes it taste differently then?
6: I, I think that I, I really is is about um, these kind of long held process of how they raise the dough and how they bake it. And like I said, it's it's using um, it's just using good good old fashioned pig fat. It's not a complicated bread. It's just you gotta have those proportions right. I want to see that little marketing branding slogan: "Good old fashioned pig fat." I know. I mean, is there is there anything that pig fat doesn't make better? I contend no.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And since this is radio, I should tell you that Carlos weighs seven (laughs) hundred and twenty-five pounds. No, I'm lying. I'm totally lying.
6: Uh, I have been told that that I would be I would come off as a, as a more uh, believable uh, food critic and, and dining editor if I put on an extra 150 pounds. So I'm working on that.
2: See, I, I look at it the other way. You ever go to a Dunkin' Donuts store? I mean, the guys there weigh two pounds because they don't eat it. Right. That's a good point. Right. That's a good point. But you have to eat it. sample. You sample. You sample. Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of like wine tasting. You just spit it out.
6: No, I just I, I order a lot and I try lots of things and I take a lot I take a lot home. You scammer. Ah, it's a little bit of a scam.
2: Yeah, you scammer. But it's not just the Cuban bread. It's the Cuban hamburger.
6: Yes. See, now that's um, a secret. That is the secret. You know, if you come to Miami and you want something really distinctive and it's so low end and so accessible, it's called the Frita and it's just a Cuban hamburger. They're kind of developed in Havana and you can find a half a dozen shops, you know, within a half mile range where you can get a good one.
2: Now, speaking of Cuban I go back probably 20 years ago. I would take my friends. You're going to laugh at me, but I would take my friends who had no experience at all with Cuban food. And I figure I got to immerse them a little bit slowly. So I take them to the airport to La Carreta, yeah, because that was a that was a good introduction for them, sure, right? And then La Carreta got big and they got famous and they got the branches all over the airport now. So yeah, yeah, La Carreta. But you know how I discovered La Carreta? Because I did a book years ago called Flight Crew Confidential where I interviewed about 400 different flight attendants and uh, flight crew members, pilots as well, to tell me where they went on their layovers. right? Whether mm. Because they only had 24 hours. They were on a budget. They had, everything had to have a cost-effectiveness to it because they weren't making a lot of money. They always wanted to eat well. They were Bourdain before Bourdain. They were. Yeah. And every one of them who was going through Miami is saying, that's where I go. That's how I found out
6: about it. Oh, that's yeah. a smart. Talk to a yeah. local, for sure.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So now where do
6: you go? Uh, well, for Cuban food there's this great place where you got to go west. It's called La Fragua and it's from the folks who uh, originally worked with the Estefans to open um, to open the Larios on the beach like the same cook and it's a 86 year old man his 80 year old wife and he's still the cook in the back and she's still out front and it's a great partnership and the food is as you would expect.
2: okay, so that's where you go for Cuban food. yeah. Where do you go? You mentioned it before, so I'll bring it up again. Where do you go for Peruvian? You know, right around my house,
6: there are two—not one, but two—aromas uh, de Perú, uh, aromas of Peru, uh, and it's just—it's almost like a—it's like a, a family-oriented small chain, and uh, and it's really just just great Peruvian food. And there's a place that all Peruvians love. That again, you got to go west. Uh, it's called Doctor Limón. Uh, because he used to make these cocktails that were like uh, hangover cures and they, you know, they were ceviche based. So people still, so Peruvians who live in Miami that just love proving go to that place way out in Kendall. And they take a designated driver. Uh, it's, I, you know, I don't speak for other folks, but they should. They should definitely <laughs> take an Uber.
2: We're talking to Carlos Frias, the food and dining editor at the Miami Herald. All right, so we've dealt with Cuban, we've dealt with Peruvian. Is there such a thing as great French food in Miami? Great French. Well, there is a uh, there is a, a
6: really well reviewed restaurant. We just reviewed a, a restaurant called Le Petite Maison, uh, which is uh, here in I want to say in Miami Beach, uh, and it got uh, our reviewer uh, Victoria Pesche, um, Pesche Elliott, Elliot um, gave it three and a half out of four stars. She really loved it, and she is a real connoisseur of French cuisine, and she loved
2: it. So, so the answer to the question is yes, you can find it. Yes, you can find it. Okay, absolutely. barbecue. Barbecue barbecue That's in tough. South Florida That's is tough. tough,
6: but I will tell you there's a there's a spot called um, and it's you have to drive a little north. It's in Broward. Uh, it's called uh, Blue Willies, and it's it used to be just kind of in this little hole in the one. It just moved to a slightly bigger space. But if you're gonna, it's it's probably where you can get the best down home barbecue. Uh, and there's another place called Smoke, uh, which you can find appropriately in, titled. Yeah, which again, solid barbecue.
1: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
2: Now, I've been coming to Orlando since the 70s, and some might argue Orlando's only been coming to Orlando since the 70s, but we'll get to that later. And when I first came here, people were talking about, oh, you want to go to this great restaurant in Old Town? I said, how far back does Old Town go? They said, oh, like 1958? I said, wow. So there's an interesting relative moment to the definition of the word history here. And then if you're not careful, you know, it is true because Americans have a certain comfort level when they travel every every imaginable fast food franchise you could think of is here and everywhere in Orlando and yet Orlando has evolved uh and and quite remarkably and quite happily into quite a food scene and joining me now who's the uh the food critic and the restaurant critic of Orlando Weekly is Faiz Kara. How are you, sir?
3: Very good. How are you? Well, you,
2: you heard my intro here. Um, I mean, in the old days, it was, you know, Arby's and Wendy's and, you know, not a whole lot of of, of stuff. And now there's a great Lebanese place. There's, there are French places. There's great sushi. I mean, uh, Disney for years had the worst food ever. And then they got smart at the roof of the Contemporary Resort. Mm-hmm. They built what?
5: They built the uh, California Grill. Which
2: was it's actually great. I mean, you know, you never used to say Disney food and great in the same sentence, but they did a good job.
5: Yeah, I mean, they had a, a real concerted effort in the mid to late 90s, I would say, yeah. to really elevate the city's food And by team. the way,
2: they had nowhere to go but up.
5: Right. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. <laughs> yeah. When I, I remember when I moved here in 99, I saw it as a bit of a, a cultural and culinary wasteland because, as you were saying, it was very homogenous in terms of its uh, – uh, you know the uh, chain restaurants everywhere Um, but I would say in the last five years we've seen a real as you said uh, a real evolution in in a maturation even uh, of of the city's food scene it's been sort of incredible I I don't think I would have ever predicted it uh, after moving here in 99 and seeing what we you know you know the choices that we had but uh, it, it has been nothing short of incredible really so what have been the big surprises for you the big surprise is there's a diversity of options. You know, I, I grew up in Toronto, and I... Um...
2: By the way, if you grew up in Toronto, this is, this is wild, and you're not, you weren't expecting me to tell you this, but I discovered, in the days where I used to eat meat, and I used to eat meat a lot, I haven't had meat now in nine years, but, but in the days that I did, the best steakhouse in North America was in Toronto, but it wasn't what you would think. It was actually a Chinese restaurant on Eglinton called the House of Chan no way <laughs> yeah I mean unbelievable. nobody went there for the egg roll you went there for the steaks and it was just amazing so there's always those kinds of surprises when was that? Oh, they. oh god that started 20 years ago mm-hmm. until they lost their lease about four years ago okay. and had to move and they've just reopened I just heard the other day they're actually back now of course I'm not eating meat anymore but I'm telling you you want a great ribeye? You go to that this Chinese restaurant the called House, it, of House of Chen. I'm going to check it out next time In I go. Toronto, yeah,
5: yeah. And if you're if you're not eating meat anymore, there is a great restaurant that's open downtown called Sanctum Cafe, and they they've taken vegan vegetarian food and you know elevated it.
2: Well, by the way, I'm sorry, folks, if, if, if I'm insulting you, but vegan food insults me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's. It, and by the way, did you? Okay, now I'm going to get people mad now, but I'm going to say it anyway. You walk into a vegan restaurant. You ever notice that people talk there like escaped librarians? <laughs> they're all like, would you like the kale? <laughs> it's, like, it's like they're like the people from the pods. You know, they're, they're, I mean, it's like it's like, why are they whispering? Yeah, You know, it's sort of like we have special tofu. Thank you
5: we're going to add fuel to the fire cuz i i always thought they weren't the most healthiest looking folks around here they either, looked but. a little pale <laughs> a little, they <laughs> looked
2: a little pale i get it i totally support the idea but you're not going to find me. there's this vegan restaurant that a friend of mine took me to in new york it was painful for me mm-hmm. i mean here's our vegan bacon it's like what you know no you either get look you either get the high test or you don't get it at all okay. don't you know okay so let's We'll get to vegan later, all right? <laughs> don't go there.
5: Okay. Although we just went there. <laughs> we just went there. I know. It'll but, be edited out.
2: Tell me the surprises. No, it will not be edited out. It's all in.
5: <laughs> well, I was talking about the diversity of options. You know, I, you know when I, like I said, when I moved here, uh, everything was very homogenous, very very one-dimensional, very chain-heavy. And then, all of a sudden, I'm eating really good, you know, South Indian fare. I'm eating incredible Vietnamese, Vietnamese uh, cuisine. Um, I'm eating, like, as you were you were just talking about, you know, this, you know, like, French food. Um, we've seen Dovecote Brasserie and Urban 40. You know, so we're seeing such, you know, such diversity, and it's not a one-dimensional diversity either. Like, you know, when people talk about Miami being very cosmopolitan and, and, and diverse, but, you know, I've always kind of viewed Miami as sort of being almost like a one-dimensional you diversity. Just, you just said you know? Miami. I did.
2: But... We're talking Orlando.
5: We are talking Orlando. So just, in just comparing you know, Orlando and Miami, I see our, our options as being truly diverse. I can go and get really good Trinidadian roti, you know, and I can get just as good you know, modern American fare from a celebrity chef. I mean, for a city this size, we're very, very versatile, and I can't think of any other city that can lay claim to that, you know, to that, to that accolade. I got one. Mm-hmm. New York. Come on. Yeah, but of, of similar oh, size. Oh, okay, yeah. good. Okay. Yeah, I and mean, we have all the celebrity restaurants, celebrity chef restaurants, and then we have really good chef-driven independent restaurants. You know, all, all our James Beard-nominated chefs, you know, are, aren't really in the tourist sector here. They're in— They're in the community. They're in the community. They're in downtown Orlando. They're in the, the little neighborhoods surrounding downtown. They're in Winter Park, you know.
2: Well, when we come back, I want to talk about those two words you just mentioned, Celebrity chefs. We're living in a world now where everybody is a celebrity chef. Mm-hmm. And from a branding point of view, you know, you have a physical limitation about how many restaurants you can be in humanly right. at any one time. Right. So how do you keep a Michelin star? How do you keep a, a celebrity chef status in terms of the quality of food if you have 12 different outlets and you can't be there? So right. I want to talk about that. Hello.
0: Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause
6: for
2: alarm. We're talking with Fai who's the restaurant and food critic from the Orlando Weekly. You mentioned all the diversity here. Um, which wasn't here before. I, I, I found a great Lebanese place. Oh yeah. Um, and they even have the hookah. What's, what
5: what what Lebanese place?
2: It's, um, I knew you were going to tell me, a
5: cedar tree. Cedar uh, Cedar tree or cedar? Cedar. Cedar, yeah. yeah. Cedar's, Cedar's on Dr. Phillips.
2: Yeah, it's just a small little place, but you know, you go in there, they got the hookah pipes, and you go in there and you have all the meza. You know, mm-hmm. It's like, Orlando? Really? And yeah, the answer is really. Yeah. But you mentioned Trinidadian.
5: I did mention Trinidad, but just before I get to that, another Lebanese Lebanese yes. place, Mariah Restaurant. I swear it's got the best falafel I've ever had, and I've been around. You're a falafel guy. I wouldn't say I'm a falafel guy, but I do love my falafel. Um, but back to Trinidadian food. Yeah, yeah there's a place called Singh's Roti Shop. It's on. Uh, it's not in in the. I guess we can call it the uh, uh, less gentrified um, area of of the city, to put it uh, you know politely, and. Um, but it serves Trinidadian fare is a little different than Jamaican fare. It's got more less I would say, jerk, less jerk, less jerk, and a little bit more of the Indian influence. Um, so their their roti, uh, they'll they'll stuff it with their roti is a little more puffier, less. Uh, it's got less of this uh, dal, which is uh, you know a, a bean of sorts. It's a dried, uh, crumbly. But anyway, uh, it's it's a very puffy roti. And they fill it with, you know, all types of curries, be it, uh, you know, you being a non meat eater, you'd really like the, the chana masala, which is chickpeas, garbanzo beans, in this very heady curry, spicy, and put the scotch bonnet peppers in there. It's uh, it's it's so good. Um,
2: now, you mentioned Urban 40.
5: Yeah. A
2: restaurant that's been around only about a year and a half. Right. Uh, they do a really good... Last night, I was there for dinner. I mean, I didn't expect anything. It was like... They did this charcoal charred, I mean, this charred garlic mussels. Unbelievable. Wow. I mean, I mean in, in, you know,
5: in Orlando. Yeah, and that's that's just, like I said, that's just a testament to what, you know, the offerings that we now have that we didn't have 10 years ago. You know, it's really, it's really like I said, it's really been incredible.
2: And then, of course, there's hotel food, which used to be an oxymoron, mm-hmm. right? It used to be, you know, steak and potatoes and room service and an old cheeseburger. And, right. And now, you know... Hotels realize that it's not just an afterthought. You literally have to put some effort into it and make it really worthwhile.
5: Absolutely, and in fact, there's a, a Norman Norman Manakins restaurant. Well, I know the, Norman. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's probably arguably our, our Florida's most famous chef, and he has a restaurant, Norman's, at the Ritz Carlton.
2: And Norman's been on this show many times.
5: Yeah? Oh, hasn't? Oh, great. yeah. Yeah, and he.
2: And by the way, I'm a not I'm a non meat eater, but his foie gras mm-hmm. at that restaurant. Oh, my God. Now, how would I know that if I'm not, a, well, uh, something happened. Yeah, yeah, maybe you had yeah, a little lapse. Yeah, a, a little,
5: little lapse, little lapse yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to get bad foie, right, I guess, you know, but... Um, uh, that's not true. Yeah? Have you had bad foie? I have. Have I had
2: bad <laughs> foie?
5: <laughs> so pretentious. Man. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, me, my wife and I always have our anniversary dinner at, at Norman's, at the ritz Carlton, so, you know, we have no, no aversion to going to a hotel and dining on really good fare.
2: And, you know, you've got bull and bear here, which I I, I right. hang at that place.
5: Mm-hmm. And, based, and they've got great seafood. Great vegetarian offerings at they, bull and no, bear They here.
2: actually do. <laughs> no, they've got some great seafood.
5: Good. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're a pescatarian.
2: I am a pescatarian. Okay. Bet. I'm not totally crazy. Okay. Because if I was totally crazy, <laughs> I'd be whispering like this. and could going to have some more kale.
5: Yeah. Look like, a little more pale.
2: Okay. Let me ask you this. Was the word gluten even in our vocabulary six years ago?
5: Yeah, really. It, 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 I don't think it was. Yeah. But, you know, you know th- that's also another trend. You know, we – restaurateurs. Uh, but, yeah, you talk about – people I know who are totally healthy are just, I like the gluten-free. Really? Right. What does
2: gluten-free mean? I don't know. I just want it.
5: Yeah. yeah. There's people with legitimate – I mean, they oh, have legitimate absolutely. allergies. Absolutely. Uh, and absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, it, it has sort of become a bit of a trend. Um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but, you know, restaurateurs have to be even more aware of, of, of allergies um, that their customers have. Be it you know gluten or nuts or chili peppers like my wife has, um, and and that's another trend. I'm, we're, I think we're finding that a lot of a lot of ingredients, a lot of foods that weren't typically served spicy are right. now being served spicy, which I love. You know, I right. I, I love chili peppers. Um, I think so. That's another trend I'm finding. You Here's know, a trend:
2: asterisks all over the menus. To just probably try to protect the restaurant, and also inform you that maybe you don't want to order that, right? Or, yeah, you
5: know. and and we have to understand this is still a business. You know, as much as we talk about, uh, uh, you know, or we look cast dispersions on chefs that have like twelve restaurants, and you know, and how do they maintain the quality? You know, it it's still it's still very much a business.
2: All right, well, let's talk about where you like to hang out, because I'm one of those people who says, okay, if you're going to come to Orlando, you should rent a car. Because if you're just going to stay on a theme park property, you're disenfranchising yourself from all this other opportunity that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So in a given, let's say, 25-mile radius of where we are right now, if you're going to stay at the Waldorf Astoria for you know, five or six nights, you're going to eat at one of the restaurants here at least once or twice. And why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Right? Makes sense. All right. And the, and the food's great. So mm-hmm. now let's get off the property. And where would you go for breakfast, lunch, or dinner that may not be in the brochure, that may not be in the guidebook that you hang out at?
5: Yeah, you know, I, you know, I'll always grab. I mean, I, I go out to eat a lot, obviously, for you know, for what I do. But for the places I like to hang out at, I, I'm looking for comfort, and for me, comfort isn't necessarily, uh, you know, Southern comfort. For me, like I would go to the to Mariah for for her falafel or her for veggie her veggie plate, you know, uh, her grape leaves and her uh, kibbeh and her unbelievable labneh, or I would go to um, to a place like Shiraz Market that serves Persian fare inside this little, you know, I guess, Persian bodega. And they have the most incredible Kuba Day kebabs. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite desserts of all time is this Iranian Persian dessert called Faludeh, which is essentially iced, frozen vermicelli served in uh, this sort of rose syrup and with a lot of sugar. And you usually have it with a little squeeze of lime. It's incredible. You know, it kind of you know, you know, some people love it and some people hate it, but I just what, love it, and I'm not even ironic. What you so just
2: I've, what you just described sounds like, almost like a contradiction in terms.
5: Of uh, comfort food, or or in
2: terms of the ingredients.
5: Yeah, yeah, you, you wouldn't think that lime and rose water and iced vermicelli would work, but you know, it's it's incredible, and you can have it with a pistachio ice cream. Uh, of oh, course. Well,
2: well, so for me, that's all comfort. No, no. It's pistachio ice cream with all other stuff on the side. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, actually, I like more more follow day and well, actually I like equal equal. Come on, too. You can't yeah. say. That, that, it is incredible too. Um, so I, that's, where I, that's what I gravitate towards. Singh's roti shop for, for some Trinidadian roti. So I'm going for that. To me, is my comfort food. Having grown up on, on you know Indian food all my life, you know I sort of gravitate towards those sorts of flavors. You know, um, a fried chicken to me, while well, I love it. To me, isn't as comforting or, or meatloaf, for example. Although the
2: fried chicken at the Bull and Bear is pretty good. Yeah, and I don't know that for a fact because I'm not eating it. But everybody right. tells me
5: that. that's what you hear a word a, on the street. I've heard, yeah.
2: I've heard word, I've heard <laughs> heard things. Yeah. Whereas Robert De Niro said, I heard stuff, I heard <laughs> stuff, I heard, stuff. I heard, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> heard stuff.
5: Yeah. Korean fried chicken too. That's another big popular Korean fried chicken. Korean fried chicken in yes. Orlando. In, in Orlando, yeah. You a lot of there's a lot of places that don't serve it. So. There's, there, you know, that's another trend, I guess, you know, Japanese fare, Pan-Asian fare, uh, street food, you know, Asian type street food, be it uh, hawker style fare that you get in Malaysia or Singapore or uh, bao or uh, ramen. And or, so
2: many great small restaurants in the strip malls that you didn't even know about till you got there
5: right yeah sometimes you know you you know you have to like just go out and explore and i had to do a lot of that when i first moved here but now you know a lot of these restaurants just tend to find you uh, you know we live in this age of social media so it's very easy to you know pick up on what what the you know most popular uh, or trending restaurant is amongst those you know food conscious millennials
2: so the bottom line is rent a car have one or two meals at your hotel you're not going to go wrong and then explore
1: you've been listening to peter greenberg worldwide Catch us each week as we broadcast from the new location somewhere around the world.
0: The Hargan women seem to have it all.
1: From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom... Why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is
4: the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.